I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening, uh, and thank you to everybody who has recommended the show to a friend. If you haven't done so, then just take a moment sometime this week and tell somebody who might like Slee Rickets what we're doing here. I am grateful. Uh, thanks also to everyone who subscribes to the Secret Show. I uh, I put another I put out another episode last week. I forgot to do a little um, free uh, sample section preview for the free subscribers, but I will try not to fuck that up in the future. Uh, it's also come to my attention that some people have been cunningly finding ways around the paywall, which. Uh, okay, man, like uh, that's, I'm not, I'm not, I can't be mad about that, but, uh, I do, I, I, you know, I, I would appreciate it if you are able to support the show, then please do so. There are a bunch of different tiers, uh, and some people have opted for the rich tier, the rich person tier. There's a special tier just for you rich people. Some people have opted for that recently. I am, uh, especially touched, uh, but whatever, whatever you are able to do, uh, and if if none of the cheap options are quite right, just write me a fucking note. Just write to sleeverickets at gmail.com and we will work something out. Uh, and if you signed up for the uh, free subscription, I will just go ahead and throw a free week's trial at you. Uh, you don't have to do anything to do. You know, you don't you don't have to do anything. Just just sign up. Um, if you are subscribed to, uh, let me know. I got some more stickers in. We have more of the black, the blue, uh, pink. I think. I think we may be out of rainbow. I'm not sure. Uh, and I got some white ones that actually look kind of cool as well. So uh, free stickers if you subscribe, which is to say if you already pay me money, then you don't pay me more money for the stickers. Uh, just send me your address. Uh, oh, and uh, I got a special request from Zara for a non-hooded sweatshirt that says Slee Ricketts but does not have a skull on it. Your wish is my command. Uh, I there's there are two options now in the store that have sleeve rickets with no skull. And my brother's working on a bunch of new crazy designs that he's gonna. <laughs> we'll do something with those. I don't know what I don't know what that's all gonna amount to, but uh, he's got some he's got some wild ideas. So we will see how that goes. I think that is all the housekeeping I have. Oh, I I still need to figure out my fucking plane ticket which is not good but i am gonna try to be at the alcw conference next month this month almost this month almost in Oct end of october so if you don't know about the alcw it is uh alicia stallings line on it was it is like the mla for people who like to read books so i will try to i think the conference is at yale this year i'm gonna try to go uh maybe i will see some of y'all there yeah i think that's i think that's all my housekeeping uh, just very quickly because it's super late. Um, this was a this was a conversation. So it was initially supposed to be about relevance and uh, Malcolm Mooney's land, which is a very long poem. Well, not very long. It's a so not that long a poem by W. S. Graham. Uh, it feels a lot longer than <laughs> it is. Uh, we did end up talking about that, but but that's going to be on a, a separate episode along with some other. Uh, Cameron yelling at me about some difficulty related things. Uh, what we ended up talking about here more than I had planned was uh, an article by Garth Greenwell about relevance in writing. And then we talked a fair amount about, well, identity and submissions and editors and cynicism and as well as like kind of sincere 
invocations of identity and poetry, but that was all pretty interesting. So uh, it, it is a, a little bit of a meandering conversation, but I've, I've chopped up, it's a, it was, we talked for fucking ever, so I chopped it up into two. Uh, and this week will be the identity and relevance stuff. And then either next week or on the secret show, I will put the rest of it. Yeah. Um, this was yeah. recommended by Steve Tier. Uh, who, who sent this to me and then I, I sent it to Cameron and and then we were negligent and only remembered this afternoon to send it to you, Alice, but I think it's a good article. Yeah. No, it's uh, great. I'm so glad that you sent it to me because I feel like it brings together so many threads of of what we talked about and gives it a, a much more interesting angle, this angle of relevance because I only just got to listen to a little bit of Difficulty Part 2 this morning, but... Um, mm. We were talking. You were talking at one point about you know what do we what do we go to poetry for, and then this article talks about this obsession, total obsession, which is everywhere. I mean, we were just talking about how it pops up in Star Trek, Doctor Who, Star Wars is probably doing it as well. Everywhere, everywhere, there is this obsession with is this piece of art relevant? Yeah. Um, if it's not relevant, it's almost as if it has to clear that hurdle before we consider whether it's good or not. And I love right. this piece because even though I don't fully agree with all of Garth Greenwell's points, he is he's highlighting that, he's bringing that um, into the light and saying, why are we so focused on this? Because yeah. we definitely are. I mean, he talks about that conversation that you have in the bookshop with, if you go um, with friends and you kind of pull out a book and you go, ah, oh, I couldn't be bothered to read another, as he puts it, novel by a straight white privileged guy about adultery right? and go to put that one aside. That he's is really definitely... slicing it thin there. He's really like, like he's, <laughs> he's lucky he's got careful. the straight to throw in because otherwise he's, he's, you know, it's getting real close <laughs> to home. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is interesting. Uh, I thought that was very fascinating too because he's writing from a very particular position. But yeah, this is this is just everywhere, and I think it is a really nice kind of continuation of this question of what do we what do we go to art for? Recommend it. Do you want to do you want to read like part of the the yeah. you know, initial stuff? In it? Yeah, there's a, there's a little paragraph from towards the beginning where he says, "I see the prominence of relevance as a term of assessment in our current critical language." as part of a huge and necessary correction, an assertion that these and other supposedly marginal experiences are pertinent, as all human experience is pertinent, to the communal endeavour to make sense of ourselves. That is the labour That is the labor of art. So he's talking about, you know, there, it is necessary to think about relevance to some degree. Um, and then he goes on to say, anytime we praise the relevance of a particular novel, we are positing, at least implicit, implicitly, the irrelevance of other novels. And often enough, we make this judgment explicit. We are tired, I sometimes hear my friends say, I sometimes hear myself say, of stories about straight, white, privileged men contemplating adultery. We are tired of stories about Americans abroad. We are tired of stories about middle-class Malays. We are tired. He, he he also makes the point that 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 something is lost and it happened a while ago i assumed it was more recent but something is lost or at least something changes in our use of the word relevant when we drop the preposition 
Yeah, you that no was, longer have to yeah. specify that it's relevant to something in particular. And and like the unstated implication is that if something is relevant or irrelevant, it's relevant or irrelevant to life in this moment. And therefore, implicitly, like life in this moment is about this particular thing and not about all these other things. And I'm all, like, I'm mm. always shocked when I go through like, like literary chronological history, just look at when certain poems or books were written and see a date. And I think like, holy shit, that was smack in the middle of World War II. That's nowhere mm. in this book. You know, or like, the, mm. like, you know, you see that like, oh yeah, every moment in time is about all of the things as well as the thing that we remember from history or, or, the, or that's on the news right now. Yeah, I think about that a lot. He, he's, have, he does say early on that... Um, irrelevant has joined problematic as a term of absolute dismissal, which is totally true, I think. But then he says, applied not so much to books one reads and hotly debates as to books one needn't read at all. And that seems to me almost backward. Is that like, maybe maybe there's a certain kind of bookshop conversation he's having with his friends, but like, I don't know, Cameron, about you, but like, I feel like what I do frequently hear is this or that is relevant but we were talking earlier about like, well, can we find a good example of somebody saying X is irrelevant? And like the bet, the closest thing we could think of was like, sometimes what will happen is like some canonical writer will get dropped from a curriculum or will get dropped from like the GCSEs or whatever. And then people will jump in to defend him or say, oh no, he's gotta be in there. But seldom does somebody stand alone to say like, let me talk about why this well-known writer is not relevant. Like I, I would love to read an essay like that, but it was hard to think of an example. Right. I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about um, stuff is problematic. But I don't know if I agree with Greenwell though. I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this book is irrelevant. I've, I've heard people say this book is problematic and then just talk about it, but not that this book is irrelevant. And I wonder, like, he talks about using the book, using the term irrelevant just as a, a note of dismissal, which I'd agree with. But then I've just never heard anyone argument, ever yeah. call it irrelevant, even when, like, even when they're dismissing a book. It's just, yeah, I just never encountered that applied in literary theory at all, I think. Well, maybe people wouldn't use that exact word, but I think it is that conversation that he describes there about you're in the bookshop, you've got you to get something. Get it by book, but you you have to sort through. You have to make some kind of decision about where you're going to spend this precious time that you have, and it just really simplifies things when you just go, okay, well, I'm not going to read anything by straight white guys. Yeah, that that does simplify things. But do you do that? I have for a long time, but yeah, recently have started to think about what my reasons are for doing that and started reading some things that um, like I read the age of innocence at the start of this year. And then I read Washington square and they were both just absolutely. Um, yeah. They, they changed the way that I thought about a lot of things. And then more recently uh, went and looked at the work of the Australian poet, John Forbes. And he was somebody who I, I had just dismissed completely because he is, you know, bombastic, straight white guy. And uh, I just, I, I don't want to say that I regret dismissing him, but like, I sure missed out on a lot. I'm not reading so you, him. But you, you, if I'm understanding you, you've had a moratorium in place. 
yeah, I mean, a fairly like unconscious Por- a one, porous one, yeah. given that yeah, you do yeah. interview it as we've established a shit ton of straight white guys, but, <laughs> but like you, oh, cause like I, I had a friend uh, here who for like, it, it had a standing moratorium on like, I won't read any books by men um, for like years. Uh, she, you know, she was not a, she wasn't a literary podcaster. She wasn't a teacher. You know, she didn't, that wasn't part of her professional life or her vocational life. It was, she just read mostly novels for pleasure, but she just would never read books by men. Uh, and like, you know, I never tried to dissuade her. Cause like, she's just, she's never going to run out of good books by women to read. But, um, but that is like, that is a real consideration you have applied in your own reading life. Yeah. And it, and Garth Greenwell gets to this towards the end of his piece, but it is, it's about time, right? It's about the fact that like time is, is finite. And I felt as if I needed a way to get through the amount of stuff that I wanted to read. Um, but thinking about, but, but to, to sort it somehow and to kind of like make it feel a little bit more manageable. And at one point in the essay, he says, well, we could delete our Twitter accounts and unsubscribe from Netflix. And like, that's, <laughs> to me, that's kind of the heart of the whole thing. It's yeah. like, if you, if you want to read as much as you want to have read, then something else has to go. Yeah. I was going to say, but Alice, was it, was it not also a, a, a kind of political act? Because I mean, so, you know, we date our friend Dave Coates refuses to read white straight men. Oh uh, no, so refuses to review white straight men. You might you might read them and just not review them, I don't know. But he refuses to review them. And like I don't know, I, I see no problem I wouldn't judge anyone who does it or judge anyone who well, no, I judge someone who'd cut a specific like certain groups out of their reading, but not white straight men. But did you so Alice, you're talking about um it being a time constraint but it's also a kind of socially conscious time constraint right yeah yeah obviously there's there's a political side to it but i wouldn't want to make it sound like it was particularly well thought through or anything it was more sort of an instinctive like uh like this conversation that he describes you know i'm just i'm i'm tired i spend a lot of time listening to men and uh maybe there's a way to correct that in my reading and yeah just and the other thing is the gravity of this work you end up back with them anyway unless i find this for myself anyway unless you try to get out of that kind of tractor beam and maybe it feels like that's not true anymore and you're just constant constantly having work pushed on you that is not by straight white guys but um yeah it's it's interesting how quickly you end up back in that world. That's a really interesting thing because I wonder how much the work that's pushed on you, the people pushing that work, I wonder how much of them are straight white men. Because like there's something I say slightly controversially to Matthew in a few emails, which goes something along the lines of the white poetry establishment when it cares about relevance t- tends to like writers who write about, uh, minority writers who write about subjects and especially writers who write about that in very clear and clear diction and clarity so why t- i mean my controversial example is uh Denez smith who is very popular right about in america mm, yeah i like Denez like, smith yeah <laughs> and i can no, try no, that's right. this is not, this is not we, have a, like we have a spectrum i appreciate i, I yeah. think he's there's something he does pretty well that i and i appreciate it 
I have a limited admiration for it. I think you probably enjoy it a little more, uh, Alice. I think Cameron has has far more scorn. Yeah. Sorry. That's fine. It's great. My comparison with him, my comparison of him would be with someone like uh, Jay Wright, who I doubt either of you would like very much. But who I, I like, like some things he, of his, but I just am not ready. Okay. He's just he's very complex, and he doesn't write. He writes on some similar themes as Smith, but also a lot differently. And I get that there's an, an argument about difficulty here and that he is le- much less re- well-read than Smith because he's more difficult. But he's much, uh, he's much less well-read than, say, someone like Geoffrey Hill or J.H. Print or any of the language poets. He's not as famous as any of them. And I wonder if that's to do with his race and also because the mainly white establishment who like to make themselves feel better by attempting to push their sort of version of, minority poets would rather push people than as Smith and, people, and poets like that who they feel quite comfortable with than people or poets of poets like Jay Wright who challenge them and make them see poetry in ways that they wouldn't correspond with their typical ideas of relevance. So do yeah. you think that do you think that it interacts with like do you think that is about the minority part or do you think that's about the poetry that like do you think Jay, in an odd way, like, do you think Jay Wright would be more likely to get published if he were white, whereas Denez Smith would be less likely to get published if he were white? And, like, and writing the same poems? I mean, it's, a, it's a kind of a semi-nonsensical thought experiment, but, like, do you, do you understand no, what I'm it, asking? Like, yeah, no, it's hard because Jay Wright is so, his poetry is so invested in sort of this myth-making of um, a certain African mythology, so it's quite hard to imagine him as a white writer. But, right. like, that... To an extent, yeah, definitely. I think, I think, I definitely think part of the neglect of Jay Wright is because of his race, because a lot of white people aren't prepared to find a black poet who is both um, complex and not talking about the themes that they want from their black poetry. I think that right. I think a lot of sort of liberal white readers who make up what I think of as much of the poetry establishment do want that. And that's why they would rather promote Jay. That's why they wrote promote Dennis Smith because to an extent reading him and liking him makes them feel happy and less like, I don't know, like white racist. It makes them feel right. happier than Jay Wright does who challenges them constantly. And challenges them well, in what ways specifically? Like, well, he's, he can be them. a difficult poet just in the same way that Jeffrey Hill can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, but... he's elusively intellectual. Yeah. So it challenges them intellectually. Yeah. I His think, most recent book, they... like, I find I'm just, like, opaque. Like, I c- mm. could not make heads or tails. And clearly, explicitly because there were so many things that he had read and knew by heart and I was totally unfamiliar with. Yeah, I'd say he's maybe as much learned, if not more learned than Hill. Like, I, want, like, I think he might be even more obscure than Hill at times. The reason I love him is mainly because of his limits. Two things. One, because I think I find him linguistically amazing. Like I don't find any other writer writing lines or sentences or phrases like him. And secondly, because to me, he, I think he's idiosyncratic in, in as much as the only other poet I know who does similar things with him with mythology is Blake. Like he has created a substantial body of not to say prophetic, but certainly mythological narratives, which places him into this massive divine uh, cosmological setting, which only Blake does similarly. And I find that to me is amazing and not many poets do that. But yeah, I certainly think that 
right tests an audience intellectually and to an extent syntactically. And I think white people, some white, well, not all white, well, not all white people, obviously, but a lot of white liberal readers would subconsciously rather be tested by an intellectual poet, a white poet like Jeffrey Hill, and then go off and read some Denise Smith and feel happy that they're help that they're quote unquote helping black poets, and also feel happy that they're understanding things that they think of as anti-racist, and spend time finding themselves intellectually challenged and even uh, confused by a black person or a black poet. I think that's definitely part of the problem. I think I think I may, it's funny because I, I think, and I don't know if this is telling in itself, but like, I think my, my suspicion is that it's, I'm more cynical than you, but I am less suspicious of, because I think what you're describing is like, in, implies also like an internal, like a racial insecurity in a way. Oh, and I, I think I'm more yeah. cynical than that, you know, but I think it's, I think in a way, like it's less, I'm less racially cynical and I'm more like, uh, like morally and intellectually cynical. Like, I, I think it, I think it has to do with getting credit. Like I, I, like the last time I taught a college class, uh, I was just a po you know, like poetry writing class intro level. And I got one very, one extremely, uh, outspoken, uh, student who's a white, woman and she wrote a furious note in her student eval um, which i'm sure didn't help me that said that took me to task for for only teaching one poem by a black poet all semester and i was surprised because you know n not by accident like with some sense of conscientiousness about 20 percent of the syllabus was black poets but only one of those poems had talked about getting beaten up for being black it was a Derek Walcott poem. And the rest of oh, them wait. didn't explicitly... So, wait. Sorry, go ahead. No, so, so you taught more than one black poet? It was just the only... Poet, that one black... The, sorry, you taught more than one poems by black poets. It's only, it's only that one of those poems directly mentioned a very uh, typical experience of blackness and racial violence. Right, which which may have, which may tell you that like maybe I'm not picking enough poems that deal with race, but like they were mostly poems about other stuff, about love or whatever... Uh, or religion, but but it it made me think like because I I think That's if you're if your editors if your publishers if your teachers if you're if you're anybody who's sort of making these decisions, I think I think it may be less that because I tend to think that person who's genuinely interested in in Jeffrey Hill will also probably be interested in Jay Wright. It's just that Jay Wright's not as well known. But like, but I tend to like I don't think that somebody who enjoys reading Jeffrey Hill will say. Ooh, I don't like that this black poet is also very like smart and difficult and well well read. I think it probably is more like if I'm going to publish poems by black people, I want credit. I don't want there to be any mistake about it. And I see, you I could, see that. You, does that? I mean, does that? Does at least the logic of that make sense? I may be wrong. No, I, I I agree with it. No, I agree with that. Some people won't publish Jay Wright because they want credit, not because of the racial thing. I just yeah. also think that I'm right in the racial thing. Like I just think mm. both of those yeah, things yeah. are right. Sorry, Alice. No, I, that, although, all I was going to say is that that's a kind of racism in itself, right? Expecting oh, it, oh, oh, wanting credit. Poets. Oh, totally, yeah. totally. No, yeah. no, no, not wanting credit. Sorry. Ex well, that is racism as well. But <laughs> expecting like, everything's racism. But expecting a certain group of poets to talk about only a certain recognizable experience, like that—that that oh, white yeah, yeah, woman yeah, yeah. was like 
that's really I know it that, sucks that, it sucks yeah and, and like I, I mean i know i've like read on a couple of occasions various uh black and like non-white writers saying like that they're tired of this being a convention or being an expectation I mean, like, yeah obviously like obviously that would be incredibly tiresome yeah sorry no go ahead Alice. yeah no you're both pointing to like yeah a couple of really important things like one of them being that the people who are making the publishing decisions, the promotional decisions, marketing decisions, they are they're at least, um, yeah, privileged straight white guys <laughs> talking about adultery. And uh, and the other thing is, and this is something that, that one of my interviewees brought up, is that pressure to sort of write a poem that sounds like an experience that we would expect from the person of that race. And, and the way that this interviewee put it was, um, occasionally she will write what she calls a brown poem and she knows it will get published. And what I said to her oh, was yeah, that's I such an that. indictment on the editors, mm, you know. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I was so glad that she said that. There was something else I was so, going to say. So do you, do you think that this essay then, because he doesn't belabor the point, but when he talks about relevant or this is relevant or, you know, uh, I, I don't, I'm tired of reading this kind of story or I don't need another story by this kind of person, it, is this largely identity then? Is it and and is that is that just about like this is something that people in public are talking a lot about in educated circles, and therefore any and therefore like in order for something to be relevant, it has to account for that in some way, either by virtue of its subject matter or by virtue of who's writing it. Like, is that the yeah. that's that's what relevance is really pointing to here? Yeah, sort of. Um... It's like you guys are saying, it's, it's it's a form of kind of getting credit slash ass covering. It also completely elides actually important work that you could be doing in your real life, you know, away from your fucking who you're going to publish. And I mean, obviously that that's important to it right. to a huge extent as well. But like to point to your bookshelf that is, is full of writers of color and sip on your Chardonnay is, is just a kind of a shitty look which doesn't, doesn't make many people's lives better the no. the thing that i i resisted a little bit in this essay it was more of an unstated implication i guess throughout that he 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 talks about relevance and he talks about the danger of of you know restricting yeah there's a, a passage where he says it seems to me that either we believe that all human experience is valuable that any life has the potential to reveal something true for every life, a universality achieved not through the effacement of difference but through devotion to it, or we don't. I want to encourage a pro proliferation of voices and stories, not their repression. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, that, and that's that's the the larger theme, and then the the more nitpicky thing as well, which is, and you can tell that's a at least I, I'm I gather that that was a sentence that he had to get out his his like like eyeglasses screwdriver for like i want to what does he say i want to encourage the proliferation the proliferation of voices and stories not their repression not their repression which then like that was when i stepped back from this whole article and i said well who's gonna bell the cat like what are we actually talking about here are we yeah, just talking exactly. about when you go into a bookstore do you buy this or do you not like what is the top down proliferation or repression that is being 
done or not done here. And it's like, and it, I think maybe because he's an academic, he's thinking in terms of like a syllabus. Yeah, or I think he's also talking in terms of shelf space. Like he, he goes on to say, I think in the next paragraph, I can't bear the thought that art is a zero-sum game, that we have to choose which kinds of stories are relevant and which lives have value. I can't bear the thought that works of art exist only at the expense of other works of art, that books are locked in some kind of ferocious competition for space. And I understand that that is an unbearable thought, but that, that's it's a reality, a Garth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you say shelf space, that's like capitalist truism. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you do you think when you say shelf space, are you thinking, Alice, about shelf space in your house or shelf space in a bookstore? Both, but I'm primarily thinking about a bookshop. Like when you go in, it's that thing of like which book gets to sit with its cover out. Right. Like, that's always that's, an interesting. I mean, is thing that? Me. I mean, I know that they're in like the little indie bookstore in our uh, neighborhood is, which is great. They have one of their conventions is that the people who work there get to choose a lot of the books that face out, but it's by specifically selecting them and put, pinning a note to them saying, I liked this book and here's why. Yeah. Um, and clearly that can, that, you know, that note can, can carry any level of, you know, in, of sincerity or, or not, you know, or disingenuousness. But, but the question of relevance in a bookstore seems like, that again, that seems like a misplaced concern. Like that's like the bookstore has to think about what the fuck it's going to sell, doesn't it? Like that doesn't that have to be the primary concern? Yes, but if your market is um, middle to up class white people who want to come and buy a book <laughs> that makes them look good, right? Yeah, they right, what they yeah. want is relevance. That that's the selling point. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That should be a whole table. Then they should just have like relevant. I mean, I guess they honestly they it do. is. They just, There's a whole bookshop. Yeah. fucking up the road that is right. just all yeah, those yeah. books and I go into it and I'm like, yeah, give me a book that doesn't stress me the fuck out. Are you, can, can I, can I repeat the thing you said, uh, in text about Kevin Young? Oh, or should we leave that out? <laughs> yeah. As long as, as long as it's like on the record that like, I really think he seems like a lovely he, guy, but yeah, you know, go yeah ahead. And, and like a terrific poet. And like, I mean, I, I'm, I have admired him for a long time and I think he, we can, he can get sloppy as a poet, but. But I, I've enjoyed lots of his poems, and I think they're both like, at its best, they can be both like clever and very, cun like cunningly con constructed, while also being immediately pleasing and and moving. But you made a remark about his his current version of the New Yorker poetry podcast. Yeah, I I was listening to him talk to Eileen Miles, and I, I listened to him talk to I think Christian Wyman as well. Um, so they're, they're the only two that I've listened to recently, but it was, it just felt so dishonest. The whole conversation just felt so totally dishonest on both sides. Like both people were just trying to signal how good they were, yeah. you know, what good human beings they were and, and, and talking totally past each other about, about the poems. Um, yeah, I mean, like I've, I've said this before, Matthew, but your podcast has completely ruined me. I'll <laughs> listen to this. Yeah, no, that's the exact reason why I like this podcast, because every other podcast I found was just utterly boringly positive. And like, you know, and I, I used to, I used to have a poetry magazine podcast, and I think I've, like, for like two years, and I've, I found five poems, I think, for those two, two years that I actually liked. And yeah. I just, yeah. it was just so boring. 
Yeah, and and just coming back to the the difficulty thing as well, like no one is ever willing to say, I don't quite understand this line. <laughs> That's why I used to love Curtis Fox. Oh, Curtis, because he would actually say, you know, I don't really know what this is about. Let's, let's think How about do it. I not know that name? Uh, he used to do... He used to do Off the Shelf. Poetry Off the Shelf, yeah. Yeah, uh, he did that. Oh, is that a... Is that a- Podcast. Where, where is yeah, that? Yeah, the poetry poetry foundation podcast. Poetry it? foundation. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I yeah, I have after listening to it. The the problem is for them. That was my 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 bias. My prejudice was just that I I listened to a handful of poetry foundation podcasts at random, and then I swore them all off. But but I, yeah, yeah. yeah no, that, so fair. he was he was the good one. Yeah. Oh, okay. I I liked. It. And yeah, the zero sum game, the competition for space. When he said art, I started thinking about this more generally. And I thought there is in some art where I can totally understand and even agree with the idea that we need to make it relevant. And I think it's when the relevance doesn't intrude into the actual stylistics of the art. So I'm thinking a lot of sort of TV series which suddenly take on a broader diaspora of of actors of different uh, different minorities, if you want to use Yeah, that all of a sudden, Girls has non-white actors in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And that seems to me like a very... I, I, I really could not care at all about that. Like, I, I, I'm not upset about that being relevant at all. Like, that's a very good relevance. So I really, really worked out that what I disliked was people calling poems relevant to make... Because I think they thought they would make the poems... Uh, sell more and more people would read them. So I sent, I sent, I, I sent Matthew and I think I sent you, Alex, but I don't know if you had time to read them. It's totally fair if you didn't. Two articles. No, I did. Ago. I read them. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, they're pretty. There's one about Dante, which is just like, it's not about Dante at all. It's just about the Guardian's hatred of Boris Johnson, which is like, <laughs> like fair. But like, I want, I want to hear Dante. Like, Dante's an amazing poet, but like, you wouldn't know this from here. You, you just want, they just like, fantasize about putting Johnson in an imaginary torture chamber that bears some resemblance to Dante's Inferno. Those two pieces were completely infuriating. Like, it's just Mm. like... The one about Lowell wasn't too bad, but, you know, it wasn't great. But still, it's like, as as people who who care about and read and sometimes write poetry, when you read something like that, you're just like, don't need to convince me of this thing's relevance. I'm engaged with it anyway. And also... It shouldn't have to be relevant for everybody to care about it. It should be like, good, and then right. people should care about it. Because plenty of stuff is relevant. Like they're like you yeah. want like to an extent what isn't relevant because every emotion we feel now we felt three thousand years ago. So any totally. work of art, whether bad or good, is relevant. Well, the the ver- in the version of this conversation that I have heard that maybe makes some of this at least make a little bit more sense in the same way that like like it or lump it the bookshop has to sell books i think like the newspaper has to get clicks or sell copies and the the version of this conversation where i've heard more of a challenge in the in the form of like is that this is not relevant is specifically with theaters saying why should we do this show now yeah, that's a huge thing. God. And it's and it yeah. is either either when like a show is in development and it's like can we tweak something to make it more of the moment or like how are we going to pitch this or or like are we going to put Julius Caesar in a gangster costume 
to you know like whatever like especially with oh god the I mean Shakespeare is the worst because people just love to like slap slap a new skin on Shakespeare in order to make it seem politically relevant I mean politically relevant and it's always it's always that particular move and it's always just insufferable wasn't there that yeah. famous Trump Trump thing about was it was it Julius Caesar didn't it? someone do like a Trump oh yeah version? someone did it like a Trump 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 mask Julius Caesar. We were like, he we had Julius Caesar wear a Trump costume, and they had yeah, which, which can like, it, it even even if you were gonna do like it's not, it doesn't transpose all that well. Like it's not even a good choice. It's just, yeah, it's, just like, yeah. it's just that that's you knew you were gonna get a write up about it. That, that's, that's all. That's right. right to the sort of conceptual art, sort of the junk food of art, as I think about it, and it's sort of a nice concept, and then it doesn't survive like after one encounter and then like the second encounter it just grows more and more stale as a concept yeah and that and i mean and that, and that is the that is the the cleanest and cruelest definition of conceptual art that i've i've encountered is that it is art where hearing it described is is identical to the experience of seeing it or you know watching reading it or whatever like knowing the concept is the whole thing and then you don't you don't you know as with as with you know uh, kenny goldsmith you don't actually have to read it uh, but is there like, you know, trying to play devil's advocate with the newspaper, they've got Robert Lowell at a hundred. And then what was the, the occasion of the Dante one? Was it, oh, the 700. It so it was literally, they were anniversaries in both cases. Mm. Is it, is it just, we need to have, we need something to fill this space and here's some, I mean, like th that's the relevance to start with is like, well, what anniversary, what big anniversaries are coming up? Like who, like I was trying to imagine the conception of each of these pieces. Yeah. What's the pitch meeting like? Right. It is because it was like, because yeah. in both cases, like the relevance question is so central that it, what was not the case is that somebody wrote like somebody who loved Dante wrote an essay about Dante. And then they said, how can we make it seem more like relevance was at the heart of each of these as right. the occasion yeah. for it. So who came up with the idea? And is it just is this just a question of like editing drudgery if for for like the publishing world? Yeah, because it's I, like you can't you can't go to the newspaper and just say, "I wrote this piece about how wonderful Dante is." Would you please publish right. it? <laughs> yeah. But with the with the Guardian, I sort of see it as a um, a very good hearted, good hearted, mediocre feeling on their part like i think their heart's in a good place it's just that it's just really idiotic but, <laughs> it's so a good but stupid I, place yeah like it is <laughs> that, that, that really outlines the guardians out like way of treating poetry and literature more generally i think did we sufficiently address the greenwell um at the beginning of the greenwell he says the etymology of relevant is something like to relieve to relieve and at the end of the greenwell article he talks about a painting he has in his room, which yeah. he doesn't think is particular. He doesn't. Does he describe it? I don't think he describes it in detail. He just doesn't say it's very relevant. I he gives, he it sounds that. like it sounds like he gives a description, but it just sounds very uh, like abstract. abstract. Yeah, yeah. And it's then he he yeah. closes with like saying how the the he's the picture raises up his apprehension, his perception awakes. It makes him rise to its level, which I really like. I really, I think that's what, in some way, that's what I'm Insightful writer. And I think this whole piece is really lovely. And I, I was also very touched that he started with etymology. Cause like, it's such a nerdy thing and it's such a thing that's so dear to my heart. So I loved that whole yeah, beginning. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't actually talk about, 
Here, I'll just read the first paragraph because I think it is quite nice. He says, the word relevant, I was recently surprised to discover, shares an etymology with the word relieve. This seems obvious enough once you know it. Only a few letters separate the words, but their usages diverged so long ago, so long ago that I had never associated them before. Searching out etymologies is an old habit, picked up in the decades when I aspired to be a poet. Language is fossil poetry, Emerson says, and the poem the Oxford English Dictionary lays out in this case is remarkably moving. The common forebear of both relevant and relieve is the French relevé, which meant originally to put back into an upright position, to raise again, a word that twisted through time, scattering meanings that our two modern worlds have apportioned between them, to ease pain or discomfort, to make stand out, to render prominent or distinct, to rise up or rebel, to rebuild, to reinvigorate, to make higher, to set free. I think that, that's wonderful, and it's just totally the way I read dictionaries. And I, I, I really appreciated that entry into the into the essay. I appreciate the whole essay. I think it's a really smart and well done essay. The ending with like stars, they're just like us. They're like, <laughs> all you need to do, do is travel abroad and see a beautiful painting and buy it and put it above your desk too. <laughs> Annoying to me. And then the, the other thing is just the like, you know, I, again, it's the, it's the, it's always the leap from the descriptive to the prescriptive, um, mm. which is like, like everything he's saying about relevance, everything he's saying about like, like observe, I love like starting with his own personal experience and examining it because I, like that, that habit of thought is one I have adopted and find really useful myself. But then the leap to, I wish to encourage the proliferation and not the repression. Like to me, it's it's the same. Like there ought to be a law impulse. It's like, well, somebody ought yeah. to do something, and yeah, that feels to me like a like... kind of an, an impotent gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the archaic torso of Apollo move. The archaic torso of Apollo myth. Isn't Ooh, that, elaborate, you must elaborate change your life. That. You must change your life. Like it's just annoying. Stop telling. No, me but what no, to but do. it's different. It's like one must change our lives. Like, like yeah. our, no, our lives ought to be changed is yeah. how this essay would put it, I think. Yeah, it's just homework. It's yet more homework. <laughs> but it's also, it's also like, like it's, it's uh, nebulous homework. Mm, yeah, right? no, I don't, I, I know that I'm wrong. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to fix it, but I know that I'm wrong. Maybe I should go buy some more books. Yeah. Um, sure but I know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, to I'm totally, I'm totally am grateful for the essay. And he is like, he's just a very... He's a very skilled and lucid reader, um, or sorry, writer. Uh, I, I, I gather that he's also a good reader, but yeah, he's just a, he's a very like, like smart and also very effortless to read, read uh, writer. So um, yeah, it's totally worth reading. I just uh, I have I have my my nets I like to pick. Yeah, I, I really like the essay. I really yeah, and I really like the name of that move, Alice. But stop shitting on my boy Rilke, please. He's so good. No, I won't. I I really do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, 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 but you have like, it, you, beyond this, you have like a specific argument, like you have a gripe with that poem for that reason. Yeah, I've always yeah, found make, it come exceptionally on. Give, irritating. Give us, give us your, because I think I, I adore that poem and I, and I think Cameron does as well, but I also like, I want to yeah. hear, I want to hear, yeah. Oh God, I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> um. But uh, Cameron, you were gonna. I, I we were interrupted by my daughters. But um, you you said that you kind of made a made a compromise with yourself when it comes to writing from identity by way of this persona. Oh Christ! Yeah, no. I'm like 
I've already worked hard not to mention my poetry on the podcast because, like, it like well, neither of you do it that much, and like, it does. I don't think it's very good, and it, it doesn't. It's not helpful because that's not what people at the podcast come for. But like, now that you're forcing me, Matthew, yeah. So, like, I've tried. I'm writing a sequence, or I'm midway through a sequence, or I'm at the beginning of a sequence. I don't know yet about a poet who is very unoriginally named the blind poet and like the character isn't me it's not jeffrey hill but it takes off inspiration from, from jeffrey hill's idea of a sort of traumatized old man yeah. and i get like i do want to write about blindness and i am attracted to writing about that but i'm also attracted to write about other things and i and then there's also the idea of would these poems about blindness end up being published more than poems about other things because yeah. the able-bodied white establishment want themselves make, want to make themselves feel better by publishing diverse vo- quote unquote diverse voices. Yeah. So what I've tried to do is make a very sort of cantankerous, argumentative, and ultimately very very complex attempt to talk about blindness. So these poems are often uh, no, I think they're often about language and about ones in ones. Well, well I, I described one to Shane as like attempting to make sort of a blind language, so sort of darkness visible. So as much as they're describing blindness, I think they're also reaching towards a kind of blind language, or at least a language that is less interested in light, light and dark than it is interested in texture and a sort of oh. synesthetic understanding of the world. It's very hard to very hard to describe in prose which. I will admit, I kind of like. I kind of like that these poems are sort of heading towards paraphrase, although, sorry, are heading towards unparaphraseability. Although, as Alice really well points out, I need to be careful that I'm not writing things that are just compressed for the sake of compression and can't can't say something plainly yeah. without being not compressed. So otherwise, I'll be so mad at you. Like, yes, yeah, <laughs> you're you're like she won't like, even I, give I, you I, false assurances about that one. Mm. Like I envision what you're gonna say, and I scream in terror, and like that, that's 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 how I keep keep myself going. But yeah, so I'm trying I'm trying to write this sequence, and I think that's one of the reasons why I sent you um, Malcolm Mooney's Land because I was very interested at that time, and because I was trying to write a poem, which I then selfishly sent to both of you about the inability to communicate with language, and <clears throat> sorry, um, and Graham also talks about the inability to communicate with language and that is why this poem so hooked me and still hooks me i still love it but yeah um have i made a good enough segue there i think no i, I think uh, so. could, do you want to ask me are there any questions you want to ask me about this before we hit graham or like uh i mean you so do? you you brought it up as like the question like the way you 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 came to that topic was by saying that you've thought at times about writing poems that you thought would be more readily and easily pitchable to editors that would get published more effortlessly because of sort of trading on your identity and then it seems like that that kind of like understandable universal thought then brought you somewhere else like you started with that kind of cynical thought and then it led you to a different place like well what if i did write about blindness but not in a way that was just just like an autobiography right yeah i started there and sort of wondered why you do if i took sort of the confessional and then put it into a voice that was similar to my own 
but also was pitched at a different level to my own and that's where i ended up i think and then which is kind of a, a protective move like you're trying right. you're actually trying to protect your project from that extremely self-serving impulse on the part of the editors to display their own enthusiasm for diversity quote unquote right and i just it's interesting because all right sorry go ahead i'm fixing a sure. top. yeah yeah no, of course yeah no it's just interesting because um an editor won't be able to tell whether the writer of these poems is blind or not and i wonder sometimes if they'll ever ask me um if they'll ask me if i am or not and they'll ask me like and maybe they'll assume i'm not because obviously there's not a lot of blind writers out there and they'll tell me that this is sort of um not cliched but a sort of a, a taking on of someone else's identity so this is that that really fascinates me whether i should explain to them that these are drawn from my own personal experiences even if they're not my voice or whether they'll come at me that way no that that just so yeah i guess it's like literary politics and personal aesthetics clashed when it came to write the sequence do yeah, you think they should ask you um no I don't think they should ask me. I, I suspect that you're that you may be right in somewhere something else you said, which is that this is something this is a subject that writers still mostly think of in metaphorical terms. I don't think this has caught people's attention in quite the same way. Yeah. So yeah, I don't no, I think I think you may I think I think you may slip it past the goalie actually. Mm. And like I could just phrase them as like a series of translation from Rilke or Baudelaire because like, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. like no one's if they're check. not experienced with Rilke, yeah. But like Baudelaire and Rilke both wrote poems about the blind, which are not incredibly positive. Like I don't think most people most people are probably trying to cancel those poems because they're not very like kind to the blind. And like I don't know, I I prefer to be honest, I prefer them to fucking David Yezzy's poem, which like <laughs> like okay, we're gonna we're gonna badmouth Yezzy now. Like I'm I'm so, like he's a pit on his podcast. So like sorry, yeah. but like no, I think he's. I mean, he's, I think he's like a wonderful critic, and, and he's written some wonderful yeah. poems, and and he's written poems that uh, that are not as good. But that you know, but there's one in particular that there's that one in particular that isn't very good. Yeah, it's called it's called but, Dizzy. Um, yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll include a link to it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's like I I think certainly my own experience has been that like I've written uh, blind. I had like I had a, a novel that like it's in my shelf and will never go anywhere. But I, there was a blind character in that, and I definitely oh. was not thinking of like I definitely started with that as a like a metaphorical question because it was. I mean, in my case, it was more drawing from uh, from like Greek myth, but but like it it definitely I reached for it the way I would reach for a metaphor. Um, right. it was, you know, it was yeah. like a, the character who for the first half of the book he can see and then he loses his sight it's sort of like there are lots of different things going on with him but for me I definitely like thought of it first as a as a metaphorical value rather than just as a a thing that some people mm. live with so so I think I, like, I think that's pretty common still like in the way that um, obviously like less so among people who actually experience it but uh but like you know reading you read a certain certain kinds of old stories and totally characters of different races or or sexes like totally like we've used all of all of these different identity you know tags as as metaphor or as like oh, a yeah, signal for yeah. any number of other things and i think this is just one where we haven't 
shifted our focus on it yet to use a to use another visual uh, figure of speech. Although I think it's think it's coming. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Ray, Raymond Ant, Raymond Antrobus just published a like dis disabled manifesto, I think, in in Poetry Magazine. Yeah, yeah. He's I read it and deaf. Or he's his deaf, family yeah. is deaf, or he's—I think no, I think he's deaf, and his parents weren't deaf. I'm pretty okay. sure. Like I read it and thought, fair enough. I had like no react, like I didn't think, oh, this is such a good manifesto. I'm now going to take right. on. I just thought this is kind of nice. Although to be fair, it wasn't much of a manifesto. Like a lot of it was autobiographical reminiscences about white people saying weirdly controversial things about black poetry, <laughs> like that. Like a large PowerPoint was that, which I found to be honest more interesting than a disabled manifesto. But yeah, like I think it's, big, it's coming, but it's not quite here yet. Is there a is there a version of a disabled poetry? Is it specifically like poetry, or just literature, or something else? Like, is there like a disabled literature or poetry manifesto thesis that you could imagine or would want to have articulated? No, I don't think so. Because I feel like any manifesto that tries to hold up as positive will in some way be contradicted by the secrets I'm writing now, which at times can be very self-pitying and not very positive. Sure. But like, I don't know. I don't want to write. I don't want to manifest. I don't want to write manifesto. And to be honest, uh, like, the poems, like the sequence was not particularly inspired by poems by other disabled writers. Like the, like the biggest influence probably was Shane's Jim Limber sequences or Angel and like or the hastily assembled Angel because I really liked what they were doing of playing off variations while not forming a narrative. I thought I could right. do that, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't particularly. I don't particularly subscribe to disabled manifestos. I think their heart's in the right place, but I think they're ultimately going to exclude some type of literature, and by and often when they're positive, they're going to deny the most interesting part of the poem, which is the unsettlement of language. I think at least for some of them. That's the, so would you, would you, would you ever write a, any kind of poetry? Like, would you write your poetry should be weird manifesto? Yeah. Is that something I'd write that would interest you? You would. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd write, I don't say, I wouldn't, I don't know if it'd be an, a manifesto. Sure. I'd probably write an essay. I'd probably write an essay starting with something like uh, GK Chesterton's line about the imagination should be used to make real objects. Uh, atypical, or what's the word for unnormal? Not unusual. You can't yeah, okay, find here, it. Got it. The, okay, the function of imagination is not to make strange things settled so much as to make settled things strange, not so much to make wonders facts as to make facts wonders. Yeah, and I'd probably start, if I was going to write an essay, I'd probably start there and sort of try and lurch down a particular literary towards the idea that poetry should unsettle language. So that would be my manifesto. But I don't think I'd really want to write about disability because apart from these blind poems, like I, I, a lot of my narrators can see. Yeah. So for me, like I, it seems to me that autobiography, autobiography and fiction is inextricably linked in sort of my writing of poems. So yeah. I really couldn't settle on one, at least to me. This is, this is something I've, I thought about because I, um, had a fondness, uh, especially in grad school, for a poet named Paul Guest. I don't know if you know him. He's an American poet. He's from he's from no, Georgia, uh, where I'm where I'm from originally. Uh, but his first collection was called "The Resurrection of the Body and the Ruin of the World," and 
uh, it has some, I mean, this, you know, he grew up in the deep South. And so there's, you know, you can't escape Christianity, but mostly, I mean, he's, he's an extremely like vibrant, imaginative, funny, uh, poet who writes, he writes about, I mean, he, it is now, I feel like I've now seen a gajillion poems that are like written in the voice of some like Looney Tunes character, but he was, I mean, he did that at least before I'd ever seen anybody else do it. And he really like, writes, he mixes the high and the low and the funny and the serious and writes about etymology, writes about classical literature. And, you know, I, I found him just to be like a, a poet who like opened up a lot of things for me in an interesting way. But, uh, but also he writes very movingly about, uh, you know, when he was a child, he was in a bicycle accident and broke his neck and he's paralyzed from the neck down. And, he writes about that specifically. And then he also writes poems that are just about, I mean, they're, they're not, I would say they're about language, but probably not in as, as like a way you would like as much because they are a little bit more at face value. Um, but then there are other poems he writes that are in a voice that is like when he's writing about things that sort of don't require the speaker to have any kind of body, then that's, like then it doesn't come up at all. But then I find that when I'm reading poems of his that in which the speaker seems to have a body that is not paralyzed from the neck down, it's a, I have like a slight dissonance in reading it. Just but if only just because he's, I've read his poems that are so moving about, about his own biographical experience. And then, uh, and then I, I find, you know, I'm broken out of the fantasy of imagining this as sort of just being in his voice, which of course is always a little bit of a fantasy. Um, but yeah, like it, it's, it's something I've thought about in reading his poems and admiring them, you know, across a number of books, not just that one, but, uh, that there's a, that there can be a trap there. Like he, you could see how he could be pushed to write again and again and again about this one particular aspect of his life. And, and that that pressure could come both from publishers and from readers. Right. Right. So like, can we just slightly push into dissonance? So you mean you find a dissonance there yourself? Is it a, so you just find a dissonance there because you know the writer who wrote about bodies can't fully operate his own body? Or is there a dissonance there that he doesn't write about bodies well? No, I, I don't find that he doesn't write about bodies well. It's, it's, and it's not even like he, he will like describe a body. It's more like he will just refer to actions. And, oh, okay. and I think in, just... and in particular, I think with his poems, it it sticks out more because his poems tend to be so personal and lyric and moving so that it's like it, it is like when he writes in the voice of foghorn leghorn i don't think you know i but i would need to see a paralyzed foghorn leghorn like i don't you know like obviously <laughs> yeah, like yeah. many of his poems that are very good poems i think are written in a voice that feels extremely close to home and they're writing about like a domestic love, like they're writing about things in which, like situations in which I, I can I I can very easily insert him, and I think I think part of the difference is that like if they're, you read um who's the guy who writes or just wrote like a gajillion beautiful sonnets and nothing else the um fuck I can't remember his oh, name Terrence Hayes no not Terrence Hayes uh, no this is like like from from uh like mid 20th century. Fuck, I'll, I'll remember his name later. But, uh, or like, you know, like Edna St. Vincent Millay writes a lot of love poems. Uh, you know, she had a lot of lovers. A lot of those are true mm -hmm. life, but also like many of them are written in a way that like, it it kind of doesn't matter who it is. Um, right, and I think yeah. maybe the thing that with Paul Guest 
creates that catch for me because it's not at all that I think like the poems are flawed. I think I actually there is a there is like maybe a meaningful question here. Um, there's a bull gas button. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna find one that is like very specific to. Okay, here. Yeah, I, this is. It's been a while since I read this, and and I don't know totally what I think. But it's. But this is. This is the title poem of the book. Um, it's a little long, but I'll try to go through it relatively quickly because I think it's fairly lucid. Um, and I think it's just like it's very specific to him. Like this is. This could only be Paul Guest, or, is, or not so much. I don't mean so much like the style. I mean like the speaker of this poem could only be Paul Guest. It's called "The Resurrection of the Body and the Ruin of the World." Kissed for the first time, Heather Wilson cornered me behind a tree at recess until I, until I stung she pressed me into the bark. Until my shirt was sap-specked hung, I wrenched away the clumsy pop between us, my nervous word echoing as I ran, dizzy scared, cotton-mouthed. On show-and-tell day our courtship ended. Heather was to perform for the class a baton-twirling routine. Desks were moved, a turntable set up. She changed into spangles for that lumen hour. Her emergent shimmer she dedicated to Kent Goodwin, skewering me clean through as the record needle dropped onto the hazy groove of Eddie Rabbit's I Love a Rainy Night, a 45 I sometimes find in jukeboxes or on dying AM radio stations. No one knows how to hear anymore. Tonight's damp quiet falls from the roof like bits of soap or snow. A night Chicago radio is clear. Sometimes Toronto, if it is cold, the sky scrubbed raw. I say names out loud because the air is a poor listener, the best forgiver. Questionable behavior, I know, that leads me to the questionable science of those who believe that the voice's energy is undiminished by time, that its thin diatoms furl forever through air as if the sky were a giant chalk conch spiraled from the dirt, up and away from us, returning not a siren's empty, set, white noise, not the ocean's licking whisper, but the muddle of all lapsed talk. That, for example, we might reclaim Lincoln reading the Emancipation Proclamation from the ionosphere, that we might flicker once more the first words of love, which were lit candles falling from our mouths through napalm, that the shortest distance is not one, but zero. Here come the lost spears I threw from a flashlight into the night sky, and here they go. So simple and straight, there could never be anything curved or crooked, not smiles, not teeth, lips, voices, or lives. And yet I snapped my spine into like a charred wick when I was 12. Kent Goodwin died a year before from an undiagnosed brain tumor. The dead in Christ shall rise again, shall bring to my father's mouth the hush that comes at odd times when he quotes the book of Job to me. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It's then that tears might be unworkable, the body only a house fire, a hard bloody cough into the fist and each eye a pincushion of embers. There they go, dusk fireflies, sparklers, a silver baton, world without end. Inside, the radio is haze through the dark as I hold my breath, as my lover asks before taking me into her mouth. I watch her hair fall forward along the lines of her face, drape my hips. It blurs into the question she'll ask later, if it's must. No, I'll say, but now I imagine nerve endings that wire through each strand on her head as I touch the heel of my palm to her and shudder. She seems to drift through me slowly and yet stays. Into the dark I go more than I come, and on my way I give my mind to voices that speak beyond ideas of gravity, that do not rise or fall, or bloom as we imagine the humid lives of lilacs. I'm hardly there, but here, small and distant as a star whose light quickened long before tonight, the voice of a lost friend places its mouth on mine, and all I can think of is stopping his words that lurch even after weeks. 
that Heather's now a lesbian grocery cashier in a town miles removed. I insist I don't care, but he winks, saying, come on, you know you drove her to it, you'd pay to watch. So obviously there's an enormous amount in that poem, and it's like, you know, when I say that only Paul Guest could have written it, I certainly don't mean, like, he's the only person who could touch all of these different topics, but, like, you know, situated in the center of that poem is this accident and then the condition that follows from it. And, I, you know, I, I like, I love this book. His next book is called Notes from My Body Double, which which, you know, it's hard to read without some kind of, you know, additional meaning there. But then, and then also in these books are, you know, poems, as I said, like about old cartoons or old weird sci-fi movies or things that have, you know, are sort of totally removed from anybody's kind of immediate domestic experience. But then also, also in these books are some poems in which the speaker refers to, you know, speaks in this same intimate domestic situated way and then refers to performing actions that are that that seem to exclude the possibility that this is him writing with his own life in mind. And I think it's it's that sort of funny collision of of like lyric possibility that will sometimes kind of jar me as I'm reading it, if that makes sense. Like if if he had not written right. at all lyrically in that kind of personal intimate way then I, I wouldn't, it would be like writing anybody's imaginative poetry. But when like, when some of your poems take their power from that kind of intimate personal experience and others don't, I mean, it's, and I think like a similar example would be like Reginald Dwayne Betts, who like his life is, you know, not insignificantly defined by a long stretch that he spent in prison as a very young man because of a crime he committed. Like it's, it's a huge traumatic defining, you know, both like terrible and also in some ways maybe salvific experience that, that marks his life and marks many of his poems. Um, but it, you know, it would be, I think it would, it would, it might startle one if he were to write a poem that was not a dramatic monologue, but was, was just sort of an ordinary poem written from the perspective of somebody who, who could be him except for this thing. Right. And I don't mean to say that anybody should or shouldn't write anything as a result of this. I'm just trying to identify what it is that I've experienced sometimes in, the, in reading these kind of poems. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, yeah that completely. Makes sense. No, I was just going to say it's like an, it's an extra conceptual jarring, I guess. Like you're, the jarring is outside of the poem. You're, you're sorry, do, you're like a little I, quiet again, if you, if you don't mind. I keep, yeah, sorry. sorry. And like, like, no, no, no. That's my fault. Um, yeah, so like an extra conceptual jarring outside of the poem itself. And like, I guess. Um, I guess that the poem, well, I guess that one can talk about experiences that one has not physically experienced mm. and still find mental autobiographical elements within them. Like yeah. the poems where Paul Guest is talking about someone with a body might not be totally fictional experiences. They're probably a blend of both fiction and autobiography. Totally, totally. Probably. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I Sorry, right. go on, Alice. Yeah, well, it just strikes me listening to you both talk about this is is that really what we're getting at is the fact that we can never properly forget who the poet is, even though there's this strange idea that we should and we should <laughs> we should come to every poem completely like divorced from the idea of you know no biographical readings ever, which I don't know do, why. Where do you that. encounter that idea today? I'm curious. Yeah, no, good point. Probably. <laughs> certainly there's very little of it 
left. Hey, that's a good point. Um, but I, but I mean, I feel a little bit of that impulse. Like I feel I, like I, I should be able yeah. to read. Yeah, that no, way. I do. Same. Completely. Yeah, I should be able to appreciate this. Like completely divorced from who, who this poet is. I should be taking this work on its own merits, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. So, but but of course you can't. Even with, I mean, yeah, just like people who've had like relatively, um, for lack of a better word, straightforward lives. Yeah. Still thinking about what led them to this poem. Yeah. I well, I mean, and, and as like where uh, people certainly took note of that when Anders Carson, we, we Carson, we wrote a poem about being uh, a, you know, panhandler, that this is something outside of, outside of his experience. And I, and I get like, I, I'm, I'm always less interested in the question of like, whether this is allowed, because that's always sort of a, you know, like a funny, uh, a funny kind of mental exercise. Then like, how does, how does this affect like the, the reader's experience? And, and is it, and I mean, and I guess to whatever extent, like what, like I do want to be able to read poems on their own merits. Like, I mean, I think you're right that there's some, some, to some extent that's probably always impossible. Mm. Uh, even even if only because you can only read them in languages you speak, but um, but I do aim for that. I do hope for that. Yeah, you keep reaching for it. Yeah, Shane has a really good um, uh, comment on common. I have a podcast called I think it's Commonplace, Common Mind, something like that. Mm. Um, and he says something along the lines of, "In poets should or writers should be allowed to write." men should be allowed to write in the perspective of women and explicating that, you know, white people should be allowed to write in perspective of black people. But just right now, our political situation at the moment really maybe for good precludes that a little because of how we are contextually positioned in history. And I find that like really fascinating and probably, probably a truism, but like that, that seemed really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but like that is, that is a really good interview. Um, what? Sorry, go yeah. ahead. And like, it is a moment, right? Like, that's the important thing to keep in mind here too. This is not um, the word that the word that Greenwell uses is corrective. I think that's yeah. fair yeah, 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 to yeah, apply. Yeah. yeah, and so which to me just means there's, there's no there's no need to kind of panic or worry about it like it's it's something that's moving through yeah i i kind of always more cynical than you because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. okay. i think if, i think if even like a degree removed from that like like i'll you know friends will sometimes or, or family members will 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 take up various questions that are in the news or in public conversations and like my my response is often like well i i basically agree with your or at least i agree with some of your reservations but like the question for me is not like what ought to be happening and what should be done, but what fight is it worth it to me to take up right now? Like if I'm going to talk about certain things, what do I care about enough to say, like, I am going to bother to talk about this versus like, well, if I slightly disagree with the prevailing opinion on X, do I care enough about that to make that a big fight for me to, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, yeah. what is it worth another, it to me to talk about? Or, you know. Yeah, when what's it actually going to affect? And one of the other really great points that Greenwell makes in that article is that this question of relevance makes poetry or art voluble. 
and it becomes something that we can talk about and we can like um we can get into it with each other and some people love to do that some people love to to yell about the yankees and that's that's just really fun but i think what you're saying i i completely agree with i would much rather keep quiet let other people do all that talking and think about okay well what what kind of change can i affect here me personally i, I sorry just i i had to look because it occurred to me that some uh, other listeners may have my problem which is having heard the word voluble a million times and still not really knowing what it means so I just I just looked it up for everybody's benefit uh, or for my own benefit, um, but it's it it's defined here as being as talk uh, of a person. It's either like a person is talking fluently, readily, or incessantly, and then of speech it means characterized by fluency and readiness of an utterance. And so in this case, you know, Greenwell suggests that that it brings you know that relevance is a way to bring something into a conversation or make it possible to speak about it. Interestingly, interestingly though, the etymology uh, comes from um, uh, volvere, to roll. So it's rotating about an axis or turning. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, which, which maybe suggests something about this, that, that this is not static, this is not fixed. My very idiosyncratic take on the whole Carson Wee hmm. um, et al. controversies is something like, I don't think the poem's very good. No. Like, I don't, like, I, I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's yeah, but it's like it not, it's not worth a fight. Yeah, it just wasn't very interesting. Yeah, and like, I thought, like, I thought similarly re- about the um the the Matthew Dickman poem that caused the big yeah, that, like brought that, down. Exactly, what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, do you yeah. sorry? Do you want to summarize that real quick? Because I don't think we. I can't remember if we talked about that on here or not. Uh, but would you just quickly summarize what happened with that? Me. Or, sure, I mean, or um, I can if you don't. Yeah, if you don't. Like I can, I can try. You can, you uh, both of you can pop in if 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 I get anything wrong. Um, Matthew Dickman published a poem. Oh in shit! Poetry. I said Matthew Dickman. Was it Matthew or was it? Michael? Oh no, Mike. It was Dickman something. It was Fuck. something Dickman. Because they're twin brothers and they both write poems and they're both very successful oh, poets. It could be like, and I, and I always confuse them. Uh, fuck. Oh, okay. I think it's Michael. I'm googling Dick Dickman racist poem. <laughs> <laughs> that should go well. Yeah. Uh, Di- Michael. It was Michael. Okay. Yeah. Michael Dickman published a poem called Skulls Ferry Road in mm-hmm. the whatever issue of Poetry Magazine in 2020, I want to say. I think 2020. So, yeah. And there was a big controversy, well, a lot of social media controversy because in one part of this very long rambling and at times very prosaic poem, yeah. um, it's like, tw- like twenty about, pages, like extremely long. Oh god, yeah. He talks about um, he talks about his grandmother, I think, getting mm-hmm. on yeah, yeah, buses yeah. and not liking black people on buses, and he uses a racial slur. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people on social media come out against this. It was like I, w- I was very interested by their comment. Like one, I was very interested by the comment someone made of something like racism in not in your family is not like your artistic. It's not something you should use as artistic value it's like your dirty laundry or something like it was like it was interesting and like i thought i don't know if i agree with that but i can certainly see where they're coming from mm-hmm. but like this entire thing toppled don don share yeah like he seemed nice he published a lot of bad poems but like he, yep. he seemed a nice guy he oh, edited yeah, yeah. he edited the, the poems of basil bunting which if you ask me, is his best contribution to literature? <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, yeah, I, I didn't think he deserved to. I, I thought I thought he deserved not to be editor of poetry, but not for this. Um, but 
it all, I mean, so I don't want to name names because I don't know if this person would want me saying this in public, but, but a friend of mine pointed out that the, that what was, what he found frustrating about the controversy, because I think like it, what got a little mixed up is like, it wasn't just that he published this poem and the poem included an offensive word and it was written by a white guy. It was, it took up the whole fucking issue. It was so long. It was so, (laughs) and like, like several pages of the poem were just like one or two lines. So it was just like, it was even like just ostentatiously occupying space. Uh, And it was published like right in the, like the whitest white heat, not to say it was a poor choice of words in the, in the hottest moment of the George Floyd protest. Like it was, it was a very strangely chosen moment. Um, and it was such a long poem and it just seemed like it just seemed if nothing else sort of tone deaf as a choice. Mm. And it was like a very unremarkable poem. It didn't, it didn't, you know, like I thought some of it was kind of nice. Some of it was dull and it just didn't, didn't, didn't do much to me one way or the other. But, but what a friend pointed out, I think was that it, it, what seemed frustrating is that it wasn't just a poem in which a white guy used a racial slur and it wasn't just a poem in which a white guy like, like took his racist relative as fodder for art. It was actually a poem in which there was an attempt. I mean, I think albeit a, a pretty clumsy one, but like there was a real attempt to address a history of racism in one's own family that in a way, like this is a kind of poem that 15 years ago, I saw over and over and over again essays written by non-white poets saying, "Why aren't white poets not writing about this stuff?" Like yeah, it was, yeah. I think it was, oh, an, right. yeah. it was a yeah. good faith attempt on Dickman's part to say, "Hey, you know, my family isn't immune from this. Like this does play a part in my own life, and like I did hear these things growing up, and they, like they made them strike my ear in a certain way, and like." What does that mean? And how does that affect, like, whether or not the poem had any value to it, and I, I, again, like, I could take or leave the whole poem. Like, it was not just that it was a, an inadvertently racist poem. I mean, it, it was a poem in which he was trying to do the thing that one would think one would want to do if you're writing a poem about racism. Yeah, maybe that's what yeah. Don Cher saw in it as well. I mean, it seems insane to dedicate an entire issue to it, but. I don't think it was the entire issue, but boy, it was like. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was so yeah. long. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing Claudia Rankin read and she was reading her own stuff, but also she read from a book called Shut Up, Shut Down by Mark Nowak. Hmm. And that was just about, um, this was in mid-2016, so just before the election happened, and she was just talking about this, that exact same thing, that real need um, or desire that she had to see white writers interrogating yeah. whiteness and she was like mark noak is, is actually doing this more of you should be doing this yeah um, i so remember hearing her say that when thought. i took her class in college yeah yeah no totally mm. um it was again just exceptionally poor timing among many other bad judgments <laughs> like <laughs> like that, that maybe reveal other like related reasons that he was not a good editor um, yeah oh and it, I, it was just it was just after they released that really like perfectly just Sort of oh, the whole thing where they they the whole the long like uh, we're, we're in that yeah got, they got the that just sounded board. so inauthentic yeah. yeah and then got bored knocked out okay yeah oh man what a what a mess but yeah 
But like, I, I, yeah, I, for, I forgot. Like, I forgot because of you, Cameron. Because because like you reminded me how good a resource their website is. I forgot how like disappointing they are as an organization. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that was the show. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. You can find Cameron on Eratosphere. He is W.T. Clark. And you can find Alice, of course, on Poetry Says. She had a really, really like sweet, charming, short episode this past week about learning to read. Uh, what a, just what a darling. What a sweetheart. What a, what a dancing Matilda. Is that something they say down there? Or is that... Uh, did I just did I just do a me too? I don't know. Uh, in any event, we uh, we're all grateful. Thanks so much for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Hey, hey, hey.